Well, good evening. Welcome to Young Adults. My name's Jared. I'm excited to be with y'all tonight. Uh, I wanna ask the question, have you ever responded to the wrong text message? You go to the wrong text, you respond to what you think was one message and it ends up being another one. Um, I'm married, me and my wife this year will have been married for 10 years and um, my wife's name is Tyler. And her whole life, she's been like, yep, got a boy's name. That's just, I don't know why her parents named her Tyler. Uh, The fun part of our relationship is I also have a brother named Tyler. So when we got married, there was a Tyler Bone that was uh, my older brother. And now there's a Tyler Bone who's my wife. And I was slow to change their names in my phone. And I was like, I'm proud to have a wife who has my last name. So I'm just gonna change her last name from her maiden name to my name. And uh, that created some fun, fun uh, experiences because uh, I would text my brother something uh, meaning for it to text my wife. And I would text like, hey, do we need anything from the grocery store? And I'd like forget about it, be on the way home, drive in. I'm like, oh, somebody texted my brother's like, no, we don't need anything. And I was like, why is my brother texting me? We don't need, I texted him the wrong thing. I texted him the wrong thing. Consistent problem, finally changed my brother in my phone to something completely different. Uh, But if you've done that before, you're like, how do I have the right response to the right person? Um, The question I wanna ask tonight is, what's your response to God? What's your response to God? Logan phrased it really well last week when he talked about you're either in a relationship with God or you're not. You're either forgiven by him or you're not. Um, There's a section of the Bible in Luke 7 where Jesus is having this interaction with two different people And as you read it, you kind of read it as like Jesus and this woman, this person who showed up to this banquet. But as I read it, I see how it's Jesus and this other person and Jesus's response, their response to Jesus in both of the situations are completely different. I want you to look in Luke 7. Luke 7 is where we're gonna be at tonight. And as we turn there, I want you to think to yourself, write it down, ask it in your head. What is my response to God and what's the right response to God. So I want to read the first couple verses here, Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So here, here's the scenario. This is not just a dinner at a house. This was probably more of a banquet. See, the the Pharisees were the political and the spiritual elite. Like this isn't just the people that are like the pastors of the day. They were also the leaders of the Jewish people. They would have been the people that people would have looked to for morality and, and political movements. And the Pharisees were it. So when they have a banquet, this is probably not just like having a friend over for dinner. It's a private, quiet environment. This is more of like a political town hall. People would would get together and discuss ideas and and it wasn't a closed door environment. It was probably semi-open. So people would come and go and just come in and they wouldn't be the ones eating and dining and talking. They would just come and listen. They would just come and be a part of the conversation and just listen and be a part of, of the banquet in that way. And the other thing that's important to know as we move forward is in that day, they wouldn't sit at a table on a chair. They would more or less sit on a couch or a, or a pillow. So Jesus is turned towards the table, but his, his bottom half is turned out where his feet and his legs are facing out. Because what happens next is what's really important in the, with the second character. We see a Pharisee invites Jesus to his house for dinner. Jesus is there reclining at the table. And it says that a woman of the city who is a sinner comes to see him. 
Now, you might hear that and think like, okay, that, that has some connotation, that has some thought. Like, we probably wouldn't call it a woman of the city. She was a prostitute. She was someone who engaged in that activity for her work, and the, the chances are, in that small of a community, people would have known her, whether it was by her reputation or what she wore or where she would spend time, people would know her as someone who engaged in those activities. And that was part of her identity. That's who she was. And these are the three characters, these are the three people that are involved in this story that Luke writes down. But what happens next is what's really interesting. Her presence at this dinner wasn't what was shocking. Her, her response to Jesus was what was shocking. So I want to look in verse 38. She had brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. In that day, there was a custom that if he was at this dinner, if he was at this banquet, Jesus would have just taken his sandals off. And this was the Middle East 2,000 years ago. They didn't have shoes and socks and things that would fully enclose their feet. They didn't have better ways of transportation, so they would walk or ride a, ride a horse or donkey. So the chances are that your feet were dirty, your feet were not uh, in a presentable fashion. So custom and tradition was you take your sandals off, either when you sat down or when you entered the house, and it was customary, it was common courtesy that the host of the dinner would provide a basin of water and a towel for you to wash your feet. He would provide you oil to wash your hair so that you could be clean after walking there through the city. Now, what we find out is that the host, the Pharisee, did not offer these things to Jesus. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But what we see is she shows up. And her response to Jesus was tears. And her response to Jesus was not to stand far away and go, I can't believe I'm in this presence of this celebrity. I can't believe I'm in the, the presence of this person who's, who's done miracles. I can't believe I get to actually see the person that claims to be the Messiah. Her response is to get on her hands and knees. I mean, you can't wash someone's feet with your hair without being in close proximity. She's now on her hands and knees. Her tears are making it from her eyes and her face down to his feet, his dirty feet. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. His feet probably were not something that were, that were incredible to look at, incredible to smell. And, and she got down on her hands and feet. And she was so overtaken with being close to the Messiah that she was overcome with tears and she didn't have anything to wipe Jesus's feet with. So she took down her headdress. She probably had her hair in a braid and undid the braid and wiped Jesus's feet with her tears and her hair. And then she took what was probably a flask of ointment that we'll talk about in a little bit that probably would have been kept around her neck and she started to anoint Jesus' feet with it. You're like, anointing, like what, what are we talking about here? That she was probably taking care of him in a way that was like taking care of both the smell, the callus, the, the dirt. 
And she just, she has this reaction to Jesus that's both personal and intimate and close proximity, and she's moved to tears. Now, the, the answer to, to tonight's question is not, how do you respond to Jesus? It has to be tears. If you don't respond to Jesus emotionally, you're not responding to Jesus correct. That, that's not what I'm saying tonight. But I think what we see in this story and what we'll get ready to read is Jesus starts to see the contrast of both of the people that he sees at this dinner. She comes to him having her life transformed by him. And the Pharisee, we'll read about in just a moment, it's not the same situation. It's personal and it's close. So she's on her hands and feet. She's kissing his feet, anointing them with the ointment. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered him saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, answered, say it, teacher. Now, first of all, I want you to realize this Pharisee named Simon, this is just a cool anecdote. He says it to himself and Jesus answers him. So I don't know if he's like saying it in his head and Jesus is like, got something for you, bro. But Jesus is answering his question. And you have to understand what it is that Simon the Pharisee is saying. He has this if then statement. And he says, if this man were really a prophet, if he really were who he said he was, he would know who she is, what sort of woman she was, and that, she, that she's a sinner. So if he really was who he said he was, he would know who she was. So statement number one. Statement number two is, then he would not let her touch him. So he's questioning the authority of God to know who this person is. And then he says, if he was God, he would not have proximity, intimacy, close personal relationship with someone who would be sorted like that. Now, I just want to take a minute and go, we've all sorted people this way. Can you imagine this scene where the host is here facilitating conversation? He has the new rabbi in town. He has some of the other leaders and people. And this woman comes and is making a scene. This woman comes and is crying. This woman comes and he's thinking in his head, surely he can't be who he said he was because if he knew that she was a sinner, he wouldn't allow that. And I think it's easy to look at them and be like, man, those Pharisees, those people that were the, the political elite, the cultural elite, the spiritually elite, they're all, they got it all wrong in hindsight. This would be the modern day pastor, leader, person who knows the Bible. He would have had probably most of the Bible at that time, the Torah memorized as a school child. Like as a student. So you have to trust that what he says is true because he knows the Bible, right? And he looks at her and he goes, if he knew who she was and if he knew that she was a sinner, what sort of person that she was, what he's doing is he's sorting her in his mind. There's people that are at my dinner and then there are people that are not at my dinner. There's sinners and then there's me and my people. 
And I think it's important to understand that Jesus didn't show favoritism to either. Jesus showed up for the political elite. He showed up for the people. This is is what's wild to me. He showed up for the people that were so anti-Jesus and continued to have conversations with them, continued to engage with them. He showed up to the dinner invitation, to the banquet invitation of the people. The Pharisees were violently against Jesus and he shows up to them. But he also looks at this woman who's a sinner and he doesn't do the filing away, determining, okay, you're here and you're here and you're here. He just sees her response to him. And he doesn't file it away the same way that Simon does. He responds here. Because it's not just the woman who's in the story. We have the Pharisee. We have their response to all of these situations. I want to read you verses 41 through 50. So Jesus answers him. I have something to say to you. And he says, say it. And Jesus tells a parable, a story with a spiritual aspect. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. 500 denarii was 20 months worth of money, of finances, of salary. The other 50, two months worth. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I mean, think about this. He said, turn towards the woman and talk to Simon. They would have never given her the time of day. And Jesus is looking at her in the eyes, looking at her in her humility, looking at her in the way that she's serving God. And he's talking to Simon going, this is a picture of the right response to God. See, what's interesting about this story of the parable that Jesus gave is you have you know, if, if you say the average income is $50,000, you're looking at $75,000 of owed wages. And then the other one, you're looking at $4,000 worth of owed wages or $6,000 worth of owed wages. And both are unable to pay. Both can't come up with it. It's not, not, not a, a, an idea of like, I've got the money in the bank account. I just have to go find it. I just have to go, you know, search. Neither of them are able to pay. In those times, it wasn't just bankruptcy. Bankruptcy meant you are unable to pay your debts. You're going to be thrown into prison. And you can come out of prison when you pay your debts. Now, this wasn't a situation where there was like a work release program. It was like, you're in prison doing nothing, making no money. It's basically a death sentence until you pay that back. Whether you owe millions of dollars or thousands of dollars, it's the same situation. It's the same need. Both people in his parable needed a savior. Both people needed someone to show up to the jail and say, I'll take care of it. But he asked him, who in the situation is going to love more? Who in the situation is going to be more grateful? He's like, well, the person who's been forgiven much. And, and the, the natural response is to go, well, she's just, she's just that way because she was forgiven much. But I think we have to back up and realize that the debt of our sin, whether it's great or small, is the same. 
Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The standard for perfection, the standard for following Jesus, the standard to have a relationship with God is perfection. It's not just being better than the next person. Simon would have said, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm doing better than her and I'm doing better than 99% of other people. But the comparison for a relationship with God is not better than the people that are standing around you, it's perfection. And that's why Jesus was necessary. Because it doesn't matter how much you work, you're never gonna get there. You're never going to get to a net positive to go, okay, I'm finally out of that debt. You can't do it. That's why in Ephesians 2, the debt is not just a financial debt. Paul, the author there, says that you were dead in your sin. When you think about something dead, it's dead. The example I always use was like on my street, when, I, when one of my sons was really little, there was a piece of roadkill. And one of my kids was like, can we help it? I'm like, but that thing is dead. It's dead. It's not like if you're a little bit dead, you can do something for yourself. Timothy Keller phrased it this way. If you're sleeping in your bed and you get a spider bite, and you die, you don't wake the next morning, you're dead. If you're asleep in your bed and a tiger attacks you and it's a vicious scene and you're torn to pieces, there's blood everywhere, are you any less dead than the spider bite? No, dead is dead. The debt that we owe to God is all the same. Our sin has a consequence, and we see that in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin, the payment for what we owe because of our sin is death, and not just a physical death where we will all die one day, it is a spiritual death where we're separated from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what you see with the rest of this is so interesting, because he shares this story with him, and then Jesus does explain it. And he says, okay, the person who was owed the most is probably more right, is more loving. In verse 44, he said, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, the contrast between these two people is that she showed up and she said, I, I don't have a hope. You are my only hope. She had full dependence on God. She saw Jesus as her only hope. The Pharisee sat back and said, I'm pretty good. 
If they both died in that moment and they answered the question, at the gates of heaven, why should I let you in? She would have said, I don't have a hope that's not Christ. He's my only hope. He's my savior. Simon probably would have sat back and said, well, I didn't associate with people like that. We know that he had that attitude. We read about it. He probably would have sat back and said, these are my spiritual accolades. These are the things that I've brought to the table. Can I tell you how much I have memorized of the Bible? Can I tell you about how much I've done for God? And he flips the formula on its head and says, it's about what I bring to the table. It's not about what the woman does. It's about that she's in full humility in front of God saying, you have all of me. He was detached. She was personal. He was, look at everything I've done. And she said, look at everything I've done. I have no reason to have a relationship with you, but God who's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us made me alive together with him. And it depends how you would answer the question, how do you respond to God? But it also has to do with how do you respond to your own sin? How do you respond to your own sin? Because he didn't see a need for sin. Simon saw no, no need for sin, for forgiveness. His sin was minimalized in his life. She said, my sin, that's all I've done my entire life. He would have said, it's all about the conduct. It's all about what I bring to the table. And she said, I don't, have, I don't have a list of good things that I've done. I don't have a pedigree. I don't have a history of doing the right thing. And Jesus said, I don't, I don't mind. I want your heart. I want all of you. We see the same thing when Jesus comes into contact with this man that they only call the rich young ruler who says, I've done everything that I'm supposed to do from a young age. I've not sinned. I followed every law. And Jesus says, okay, sell everything you have and give it to me and give it to the poor and come follow me. And he went away sad because he had many things. He was unwilling to give what was on the throne of his heart because he didn't see God as worth it. He didn't have any dependence on God. He didn't see the purpose in following God. And we see it in their responses to, to God that the only thing that we see Simon the Pharisee giving up is a seat at his table. That's the only thing that we see Simon give up that you were like, he's interested, he's spiritually interested, he's there. I mean, but the, the truth is, is that he had gain either in association with Jesus, because if Jesus is the new thing, he's doing miracles, I wanna be a part of it. But if he could discredit him, which was most likely what he wanted, because we see the history and the track record of the Pharisees, he could say, I was, I was the one who hosted the party where Jesus was shown as a fraud. She didn't have anything to gain. In fact, she had everything to lose. She showed vulnerability. When you, when you think about someone, not even just in that culture, but in our culture today, of a woman letting her hair down, it's a moment of vulnerability and intimacy. 
But something that the gospel does for us, if it, it gives us what they talk about here in a love that is proportionate to what we see our sins forgiven as. But it also gives us a boldness. She was not afraid of someone saying, you're the sinner, you're the person. I saw you come out of their house. You know what she does for a living? She showed up saying, I, I can't hide it. But I'm also not ashamed because God has forgiven me of this. We see Paul kind of have the same language when he goes, I boast in my weaknesses. I was the chief of sinners. Why does he talk like that? Why doesn't he have shame around his former life? He can... Because he can point to God and go, the only reason I have value, the only reason I have hope is because of the cross and because of Jesus. But that only happens when you lay it down. See, what's so interesting about what she brought to the table, that's a footnote here, but in the other gospels, we read about it a little bit more extensively, is that she had an alabaster jar of ointment. I said earlier that she would have worn that around her neck. That would have been an adornment that, that women would wear, women of, of means and of value, and that they would have worn that to show that they were desirable and that they were beautiful. Think about that from her profession. That's what she had. If she was no longer desirable or beautiful, what does she have anymore? She's got nothing. She's left with nothing. The vials, the, the, the ointment that that jar would have been in would have been around her neck and it was shaped in such a way where it was long and skinny at the spout and it was not made to be poured out. It was made to almost emit a, a smell and to be a good fragrance. To get the smell fully out of it, to get the ointment fully out of it, it had to be broken at the stem, at the neck. She showed up to Jesus. And where the Pharisees said, if you're a prophet, you would never be around that person. She showed up and said, if you are who you say you are, you have all of me. I don't have anything to go back to if this is not with me. What's your response to God? What's your response to God? I want to read to you Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, you see this a couple times in the Bible, but in Isaiah 6, the author has been saying what God has said to him the whole time, and what we see in Isaiah 6 is the first time Isaiah speaks. And I'm just going to read it. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And the idea there was if there was a king, and that king defeated another king in battle, he would take his robe and he would stitch it. He would have it knit to the end of his robe to show, wow, he's got his robe and another robe on it. He must be a powerful king. And his robe took up the entire throne room. Above him stood the seraphim. And these are things that you have to read and just believe it as you see it 
because these are powerful beings that are probably angels that are with God. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew, and one called to another. These powerful beings, these things that are in the presence of God, who get to see who God is, and they don't just go, man, God's good. They say he is holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory, not just the throne room, not just what we see. The created world, the universe is filled with the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy. It's not enough to say it once. He's holy, he's good, he's perfect. The whole world is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. And the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And look in verse five at Isaiah's response. His response isn't even worship. He doesn't fall down on his knees and go, this is God in this vision. Oh my word. His response is, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. See, when we become in the presence of holy, we immediately see how we are unholy. Think about that. When you're in the presence of clean and new and good and you have dirt on your shoes and you're like, man, this carpet's new. When you're with your grandma and somebody says a foul word, you're like, man, that's not gonna sound good to grandma's ears. When you hear a child say something off color, you go, wow, because Pure should not be mixed with unpure. And Isaiah gets in the presence of God and he doesn't just go, man, I've sinned in the past. God, will you forgive me? He comes in the past and says, I am lost as a person. I am not good. There's not just this morsel of good in me that's waiting to come out. And if I can get right with, I can be good. He's like, there's nothing good in me. I'm in trouble. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm not a man who says bad things sometimes. I'm a man who the things that come out of my mouth are vile and bad. When you come in contact with holy, you start to see your sin. And what we see in the story is that this this Pharisee came in contact with Jesus and he puffed up his chest. And what we know is that he missed it. But what we know about the woman who sees Jesus and has the same reaction Isaiah has is that she meets freedom. He forgives her of her sin. At the end, it says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The translation there means go and live a life that is filled with undeniable peace. Isn't that what everyone wants? But our pride goes, we're not as bad as that person. I'm better than this group of people. When you stand in the presence of a mighty God, we have to do business with just God. It doesn't matter who brought you. It doesn't matter if you're better than your sister. It doesn't matter if your parents were a little worse than you planning to be. We're in the presence of God and we have to answer him. What will your response be? 
A.W. Tozer said that the thing that comes in your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. There is not one more defining trait that will happen in your life, that I hope you live another 80 years and you die a rich, full life, but nothing will be more defining than your response to God. Not the person next to you, not your family, not the good pedigree that you brought, your response to God. That's what you're responsible for. That's what you can bring to the table. You don't get to get to heaven and go, man, my family was good. They're in church every week. What's your response to God? Because what we see in these moments of humility, Isaiah gets on his hands and knees and said, I'm broken. I need help. I'm lost. Look at God's response. Look at what he says at the end of verse five. I live in a people among clean, of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken from the tongs with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, "Behold, this has touched your lips; your guilt is taken away." When we show up to Jesus and we have dependence, God, we don't have another hope. He takes our guilt away. He takes away the penalty of sin, not because he can just make it vanish and disappear, but because Jesus was the one who took it. If there's a debt to be paid, if I loaned you $1,000 and you spent it and you come back and say, I can't pay it, that means I took on the debt. If you pay it, you take on the debt. Someone has to pay the debt. And when we start following Christ, we get to live in Jesus paying the debt of our sin. And we get to walk with God now because we are seen not as our own holiness and not as our own goodness because we've figured it out and we've been right. We're seen as the holiness of Jesus. You could never work towards that and make it on your own. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And look at this. This is the piece that I think we miss in our generation. In the presence of God, woe is me, I'm sinful. Forgiveness from God. In verse eight, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. We mess the order of that up. We think if we show up and we do a lot for God, he'll be impressed. He'll go, man, that Jared's a good kid. He gets a lot done for me. I think I'll forgive him. That's what the Pharisee was hoping for. That doesn't happen until there's forgiveness. We follow God with our lives and we serve him because he's given us so much we could never repay him with our service. So now we get to serve him with our entire lives. And it's never enough. You can't work your way into a good relationship with God. You can't get it right enough times in a row that God goes, you know what? I should forgive them of their sins. There's a humility and dependence. And your response to God, whether you physically do it or it's the posture of your heart, to get on your hands and knees and go, God, I'm fully dependent on you. 
Because if you knew what sort of person I was, if you knew who I was, if you knew the sin that I brought into this world, you'd never have a relationship with me. But God is good. God loves sinners. And we have the opportunity to run to his feet and forgive us. I want you to bow your heads.